Well, good morning, Foothills Church. I want to welcome you if you're watching here in Maryville or those of you in our Knoxville location. So glad you're here with us today. It's going to be a great day. We're finishing out a series called Just One Bite. And we've been talking about at the beginning of the year, we're thinking through, man, what are the things, what's the bites we need to take? What's the just one thing that we need to do as we want to pursue God in 2023? And so I hope that you are ready to do that today. Uh, my name is Landon. I have been a pastor on staff here for about eight years, a little over eight years, served in different roles. I'm always so thankful for Pastor Trent and how he leads our church and uh, just how grateful I am to be able to preach and open God's word with you guys today. It's going to be an awesome, awesome Sunday. And so, like I said, I, I'm a pastor here. My, my family is here. We have, we have three little ones. This is, this is my crew right here. Uh, and so, oh, maybe, maybe this is my crew right here. All right, come on, come on in the back. Starting off strong, here we go. Thank you, my friend. All right, this is my crew right here. This is Nora, she's four. We got Charlie right here, she's my two-year-old. And then we got the six-month-old Roman and, uh, and then my beautiful, beautiful dog, Kona, and uh, my <laughs> lovely wife, Leanna. Um, and, and so, uh, but we, so this is our crew. So we, we have, we got a bunch of little kids. And uh, so just, you know, we are in the thick of it parenting wise. And so, uh, I mean, just this morning, y'all, I mean, just this morning, I, I got up, I got up early to, to be with the Lord this morning. And Charlie got up early to be with me. Um, and so uh, it's, been, it's been a little bit of a trying morning, but we're here. We, I made it, you made it. It's going to be a great day. Uh, but my family, you know, I mean, I, toddler life right now for me is just, it's an interesting world. Uh, it just is. And, uh, but, but really, what would life be without, you know, 3.30 a.m., someone singing Snow White? Uh, I mean, what would, what would life be without Charlie eating the dog food? I mean, really, what would it be without company coming on, over and my kids mooning them? I mean, what would life be without that? And so I'm in the thick of it parenting, but here's the deal. Here's one thing I love about this golden era of parenting that I'm in, okay, uh, is that right now I'm in the, I'm in the sweet spot. When it's, what I mean by that is I am their superhero. Anything I do is cool, all right? Anything I wear, anything I say. If I make a potty joke, I'm like a comedian at home. Like, they give me a Netflix special and all. Like, I am, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a superhero. Uh, and, and so, but here's what I know, okay? I know that my day is coming, right? My day is coming when that cape is gone, <laughs> uh, when, when I am no longer uh, the cool one at the house. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I worked in student ministry for years, and uh, I watched this firsthand. Uh, little Johnny would get dropped off on Wednesday night in August as a sixth grader, and, uh, and he'd hug his mama, and his mama would like lick her hand and do the hair thing, uh, you know, like a dog would do, and, uh, and it would be just fine. And then something happens over Christmas break, if you've ever had a sixth grader, uh, and they come back and they hate you, all right? And they would prefer that you drop them off a mile away and they walk to school in the snow or walk to church in the snow. Uh, and so what, what happens is as we grow up, you know this, I know this, as we grow up, our heroes that once were our heroes begin to fade. We all have had heroes that begin to die out. Now, I'm a child of the 90s. Any 90s people here in the room at both locations, just go ahead and make some noise because you're 90s, you're millennials, we do that. Yeah, millennials woo a lot. We'd like to woo. Um, and so uh, as, a, as a millennial, uh, a wooer, 
Uh, as a millennial, we, you know, I grew up in the 90s, and so if that makes you feel old today, I, I'm sorry about that, but my favorite old movie is Jurassic Park. Um, and so, but if you're a, a 90s kid, uh, you know about, you know, we had heroes in the 90s, and this was like kind of like the last large swath of of children before like the internet social media age. And so, you know, we would have like the Got Milk campaign. I don't know if you remember that with like the milk mustache. I know it kind of still goes on here today, but like in the lunchroom, there would be like, like one of the famous, like Michael Jordan with a Got Milk mustache on the poster on the wall. Anybody know what I'm talking about in the cafeteria? Uh, and, and then if you, were, you know, if you were really a cultural icon, you ended up on the Wheaties box. And you know, you know I'm talking about the Wheaties box, okay? Uh, and so what we would do is we would take our most popular cultural superheroes and put them on the worst cereal in the universe. <laughs> That's what we would do. We would, we would take it, no matter who you were, if you were the cultural icon, we would want to put you on the literal block of wheat, okay? It's like, who doesn't want to eat breakfast like a deer, okay? Uh, I mean, it's just like, I, I don't care if you put the frosty on it, it's, it's still bad. Um, and so this is Mark McGuire here, Mark McGuire. Uh, but like I said, we've all had heroes that have faded and died. And as you think about some of the cultural icons in the 90s, I mean, think about some of these names like, like Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds, Bill Clinton, Bob Saget, Joe Paterno, R. Kelly, Michael Jackson, Roseanne Barr. You got all these cultural icons in the 90s who for whatever reason, because of the crimes they committed, because of the actions that they, they took and the behaviors that they modeled, they ended up either disqualified, they ended up either you know, in, in a lifelong of drug addiction or being canceled or, or in prison. And you think about these things, and I think this is one of the hardest parts about getting older. And it's not your back hurting and your knees hurting. But one of the hardest parts of growing up, especially in the age bracket that I am as a millennial, one of the hardest parts of growing up is watching your heroes die. It's watching the people that you once thought could do no wrong become shams, become fools, become imposters. And so for me, growing up and watching some of these old heroes die and fade away was hard. And some of the most powerful, successful, and influential men and women, some would even say cultural superheroes, made horrible decisions. So here's my question, because you have this whole list of old heroes, is how do we not become the next generation's old hero? How do me and you and wherever you're at today no matter how old you are, no matter what the next generation means to you, whether it means a child or whether it means a 50-year-old is the next generation to you, how do we not become their old hero that once faded? Because here's what I know. All it takes to delete a lifetime of devotion, all it takes to squander the influence you've had, all it takes to, to, to ruin a marriage, all it takes to destroy the respect that you once had from your kids is gone in just one action. It's, it's one bad decision, it's, it's one night, it's one drink, it's one moment. And all it takes to ruin every bit of power and influence and success that you've had can be gone in just one bite. And, and you can spend 16 years building a relationship with your kids and it can be gone in one affair. I've seen it. 
It's just one action. And I want to tell you, like, my life's goal is I think about what do I want to do with my, my 30s, my 40s, my 50s, my 60s, 70s, 80s. What do I want to do? Like, my goal is this, is I don't want to become their old hero. I don't want to one day, you know, one day, 10, 15 years from now, be Charleston's old hero, be Nora's old hero, be Roman, be my, my wife Leanna's old hero. I don't want that to be that for my life. And I don't want it for yours either. Because I personally, I've seen some of my heroes die. I've personally watched some pastors whom I love and respect blow up their ministry. I've, I've personally seen people who were once leaders leave their families. I, I, I've seen successful men, women, and families I respected fail. So that brings me back to my question is, how do we in this room not become our next generation's old hero. Well, to help us understand that, I, wanna, I want us to look at a hero from Scripture. And it is a man by the name of Daniel. Now, if you grew up in church, you know of Daniel and the what? Both locations. The lion's den, right. So Daniel was in Jerusalem. Now, the Babylonians were coming. They had been raging and waging a war against Jerusalem and against Judah for many, many years. And King Jehoiakim, he was a good king. He was a good king, and he had held off the Babylonians for years, but now Jerusalem was the only city left not under Babylonian captivity in all of Judah. And Jehoiakim is trying to hold them off, but eventually the Babylonians come in. They come in, and the walls fall. Solomon's beautiful gold temple is destroyed. It's looted, and every man woman and child are now under Babylonian captivity. Now the Assyrians, when they, they invaded Israel, th their strategies was that they would take a, they, they would carry them off, but as they would do it, they'd be barbaric as they did it. And so you, you, would, you would hear stories about how they would take a large hook and they would put it in their, the captive's mouth and hook their chins and carry them off into captivity. So if you think that you're a Babylonian and now the walls are coming down and you've heard stories of generations past of what the Assyrians did to Israel and now you're in Judah and you're wondering what's going to happen, you can imagine the fear that was in you, especially if you were a young man at that point in time who had his whole life ahead of them. Well, the Babylonians were different. Babylonians, they didn't do what the Assyrians did. They weren't barbaric. Instead, what they would do is they would take the young and impressionable, well-bodied young men, and they would take them to Babylon, but their goal wouldn't be to beat them and torture them. The goal was to get Babylon into them, that they would get the culture, that they would get the rituals, that they would get the lowercase g gods into their life, and they would worship them and then use the young and strong Jerusalem Hebrews, and they would now turn them in to Babylonians. That was their strategy, and Daniel was one of those young men. Daniel was about 17 years old when he was taken into Babylonian captivity. So in our day and age, he would have been a junior in high school. He would have been a senior in high school. He would have been a young man or a young lady. And this is where we find Daniel's story. Now, when Bab Babylonians came in, Babylon was a little bit different in the first part of Daniel's life versus the second part of Daniel's life. King Nebuchadnezzar II came in, he overthrew the walls, he took Daniel into Babylonian captivity, and he took him to 
Babylon. Now, Babylon was a terrific city. It had one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens, just this beautiful, majestic city, one of the the most influential cities through the ancient Near Eastern history. We see in, in Babylon, it's just this great place, a terrific place, unless you were a Jew, unless you were a God worshiper. If you were a God worshiper, it would have been a terrible place because King Nebuchadnezzar would, would make sure that you worshiped him and their gods. It would, they would make you do the, the food ritualist customs that would have totally defiled you as a Jew. They would have, they've separated you from the temple. They've separated you from your faith community. So if you were a Jew, it would have been a terrible, terrible place to be. But things begin to change. Regime change happens. Nebuchadnezzar the Chaldean was overthrown by Cyrus the Great. And all of a sudden, the Medo-Persian Empire begins to transition into Babylon. And again, Daniel, he's getting older now, but he's been through a lot of transition. He's been under King Jehoiakim. He's watched Babylon come in. He's now been under King Nebuchadnezzar. He's watched Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do their thing. He's risen to power. He's interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and his favor continues to increase. Nebuchadnezzar loved Daniel because he could could do these amazing things. And so Daniel was a young, powerful, up-and-coming, successful, favored by God man. And things begin to transition, and which is where we find ourselves in our story today. The Medo-Persian Empire is now in charge in Babylon, and Daniel is under King Darius. Now, King Darius was a different king. He was different than King Nebuchadnezzar. He was a little more religiously tolerant. And so he would allow anybody to worship their own gods as long as it didn't interfere with the kingdom, his kingdom. And so Daniel finds himself, and here's the great thing about Daniel. Daniel's been consistent. He was a God-fear in Jerusalem. He was a God-fear under Nebuchadnezzar. He was a God-fear in the transition, and he's a God-fear under King Darius. And we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 6 as he has taken more and more power. Here's what it says. It says in verse 1, it says that it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them were three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account. Now, what is a satrap? Well, a satrap basically is, is that King Darius would put these high officials over satraps who would rule the kingdom. These were his cronies, his proxies. These were his governors, his mayors, the people to rule over the provinces of Babylon. And Daniel was one of them. It says in verse 3, it says, Then this, Daniel became distinguished above all, and above over all the other high officials in the J traps, because an excellent spirit was in him. I just want to tell you for a moment, one of the things that's going to set you apart as a Christian in the workplace is do you have an excellent spirit in you? Do you bring that spirit wherever you go? Because that's what Daniel was doing. He was distinguished above all, and there was that excellent spirit. And the king planned, because they saw something different in Daniel, to set him over the whole kingdom. So he rises to power. It says in verse 4, Then the high officials and the satraps brought, sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel. They didn't like him. They were jealous with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error was found in him. I wonder how many of us that could be said about us. Is when they look at the way that you work, look at the way that you lead, look at the way that you... People could find no error and no fault in you. And so the satraps were jealous 
And so they decided they were going to manipulate the situation. In verse 5 it says this, that these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel. Wow, what a thing to be said about me and you. Unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So it wasn't an issue that Daniel followed God to King Darius, but the satraps wanted Daniel gone. And so they started to think, how can we do this? How can we manipulate Darius to get Daniel out of his power, his influence, and his success? So here's what they do. It says this in verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, Oh, King Darius, live forever. I mean, you can just see just the, just the sleaziness here, right? And I think this is a great reminder in leadership that a lot of times people will come up and they'll compliment you, right? And then they ask you for something, right? They kind of try to butter you up. That's what they were doing to Darius. And it says, all the high officials of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps, all of us, those people, we all think this for you, Darius. The counselors and the governess are agreed that any king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of the lions. Do you see what they're doing? They're feeding into man's desire for power. That, that Darius wanted, you know, oh yeah, you're the best king ever. Let's make sure everybody worships you. They're manipulating Darius. And so they, they're trying to get Daniel killed. They want him gone. And they said, now, O king, establish the injunction in verse 8. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the injunction and the document. And hook, line, and sinker, so it is the new law of the land. Now, if you're Daniel, you've been through a lot. You've been through Jehoiakim. You've been through Nebuchadnezzar. You've been through Belshazzar. You've now been through Darius. Nothing's changing for you. You've been through it. And so this is what happens in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open towards Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks as he had done so previously. So he goes to his house and he opens a window. And I love this. He opens a window, right? Like in your face. You know what? He could have closed the window. He could have not faced Jerusalem. He could have not gone three times a day. But it was his habit. It was his process. It was his system. And he opened the window and he didn't care if anybody saw him. And I feel like some of us here today, we might, we might love Jesus, but nobody knows about it. We may, we may be a Christian, but nobody sees us worship Jesus. I wonder what it would be like if we prayed to God in public. That's what Daniel did. He prayed. And it says in verse 11 that these men, men came by agreement and found Daniel making a petition and a plea before his God. And if you know how the story goes, you know that King Darius had his people throw him in to the den of lions against what he really wanted to do. He loved Daniel, but he threw him in and God miraculously shut the mouths of the lions and brought Daniel out. And it was a miracle that God shut the mouths of the lions for Daniel, but it was also a miracle that Daniel refused to shut his mouth 
even in the face of the lions. Yet three times a day he prayed. And the question I cannot help but ask is, how was Daniel able to remain faithful in Babylon? How was Daniel able to remain faithful in, Dab in Babylon? And I believe it comes down to two things, all right? And, and it's this, it's, I believe it comes down to this, is that let's, we're gonna talk about Daniel's sin and his system. Let's look at each. So I believe this, in the beginning, Daniel had a sin to overcome. Let's go back to verse 10 and what it says. It says this, that when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he knew this. Like it wasn't like they just found him in his room praying as he had done so previously and were like, hey, gotcha. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. Like he knew the legislation had been passed. He knew the document had been signed. He didn't just accidentally pray. He got the memo. He knew the policy. And you can imagine he also knew what being torn apart alive by a lion was like. He worked in the palace with King Darius. He had seen these hungry lions probably tear apart some of King Darius's enemies before. This was not some obscure thing. This was a practice. He had seen him rip apart someone before. And you can imagine him reading this law, his heart beginning to beat. And you can imagine him knowing who Signet has signed it and knowing what this meant for him. And I'm sure like any of us, he would have been tempted to hide. Yet he opened his window. Yet he went three times a day, which was the Hebrew way of praying, their tradition. Three times a day. He faced Jerusalem he would have been tempted to hide. He would have been tempted to lie. He would have been tempted to sin. He had a sin to overcome, but he was a powerful, influential, and successful man. Yet he, even in the midst of the lion's den, was faithful. And God shut the lion's mouth, but the lions could not stop Daniel's mouth. And Daniel had a sin to overcome, but he also had a system to overcome it with. I mean, look at what it says here. It says that then Daniel knew he went to his house. He had his place where he had his windows and he opened the upper chamber towards Jerusalem. He did it three times a day, which was the Hebrew ritual. And he prayed and gave thanks. He had something he was doing. And then I love this. As he had done previously. So what kept Daniel faithful? Was it a one-time decision? It wasn't a one-time decision. It wasn't a whim. It wasn't a New Year's resolution that, that he struggled to complete. It was a system of habits, which is why the Bible tells us he prayed as he had done so previously. He had a small habit done consistently over time. What Dr. Eugene Peterson would say, a long obedience in the same direction that formed and built Daniel into a faithful man. His outer life was sustained by his inner life. And here's the thing about you and I. Listen, you and I are in Babylon. Like teenagers, every day you go to school, you're in Babylon. Dads, everything in the world wants to get you to compromise. You are in Babylon. Moms, you're in Babylon, grandparents in the room trying to, to help lead your family from your chair that you sit in now. You're in Babylon. 
We're all, we live in Babylon. Yes, we live in a free country. Yes, we, we are not you know, persecuted for our faith as they are in other countries, but it doesn't matter if you live in China or New York City or Alcoa or West Knoxville or whether you are homeschooling your kids, you've bought chickens and you're moving to your homestead, the enemy wants to steal, kill and destroy your life, leadership and legacy. You cannot run from sin. You cannot hide from sin. You cannot create a bubble that keeps sin out. Even in the best bubble, we want to sin. Why? Because sin is in us. It's deep inside of us. You can have Jesus in your heart, but you can have granddaddy in your bones still. Sin is in us and we can't run and we can't hide. We're in Babylon. And he wanted to destroy Daniel and he wanted to destroy you. He wants to destroy moms in the room. He wants to destroy dads in the room. He wants to destroy legacies, life and leadership. And so the question still remains is how do you remain faithful? And this is what I've learned from scripture. And this is what I've learned from Daniel's life. And this is what I've learned from my own personal experience as well. And, and, and it's what I'll, I'll say that this is probably Daniel's secret. And it's my bottom line today, it's this is that your inner life is what sustains your outer life. Think about that for a moment. Your inner life, what, what's happening in your heart, in, in, in the private place, in, in, in the secret, is what's going to actually sustain the outer life. See, Daniel's life was marked by this inner, consistent, routine, reoccurring habits of prayer and, devo and devotion three times a day. See, the reason Daniel was favored in the public place was because he was faithful in the secret place. See, some of you want to be fruitful in the public place. You want your life, your legacy, your leadership to be fruitful in the public place. But if you haven't been faithful in the secret place, none of that will fulfill you. That won't work. See, if you and I want to have the fruitfulness of Daniel, we need to have the habit of inner faithfulness like Daniel. See, those are the power of God using the one small, consistent, reoccurring, long obedience in the same direction to transform you. But see, the temptation for all of us in the room today is to focus on the outer life first. The outer life. See, we live in a world where we carefully curate our profile pictures. We build LinkedIn networks to make sure that everybody knows our accomplishments. We, we, we have social media and we, we make sure that we always wear our Sunday best and we, we, we kind of curate this outer life. It's what therapist Dr. Barry Gridley on the Intentional Parents podcast, which I highly recommend every person who's raising kids to listen to, calls the gospel of image management. It means that we think, we may not say this out loud, but we think as long as we, we, we look good on the outside or what one person calls the, the glittering image, as long as we can maintain that glittering image, then everything's okay. It doesn't matter what happens in the van on the way to church on Sunday, as long as we get there and everybody thinks we're good, then we've maintained this glittering image that we are good. Now, Dr. Claudia Black in her book, It'll Never Happen to Me, says this. She says that the gospel of image management rules are don't talk about it, don't trust anyone, 
and don't feel, and there's nothing wrong here, and don't you tell anybody about it. And see, what happens is often we, we, we get into this world where it's like, don't, don't talk about what's going on, really. Don't trust anybody to see your inner life and what it's like behind the curtain. Don't, don't, don't feel anything because that can get too messy and too strong because there's nothing wrong here. And don't you tell anybody about it. Don't we do this, right? And see, what happens is when this standard of image management perfection gets put on you and you put it on your kids and you put it on the teams that you lead, then there's no vulnerabilities and we create dysfunction everywhere we go. You may have grown up in a dysfunctional family where these were the rules. What happens here stays here. Keep the circle tight. It's the gospel of image management, and it cannot save you. All of this to maintain the glittering image. And here's what happens. The moment your outer life outpaces your inner life, disaster awaits. When your power outgrows your presence with Jesus, disaster awaits. When your influence outpaces your integrity, Disaster awaits. When your success surpasses the health of your soul, disaster awaits. But the godly life is the opposite. It's your presence with Jesus that sustains your power in the marketplace. It's, it's your in integrity that fuels your influence. It's your healthy soul that supports your success. See, without the inner life, there's no fulfilling outer life in the kingdom of God. That's why the scriptures talk so often about the secret place, the secret place. I love how Matthew 6, 6 says, it. it says, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now I love this verse, another translation, it says, when you go, go to your father who is in the secret place. You wanna be changed by Jesus? You wanna look more like him? You wanna follow the Holy Spirit? Well. You can go there, but you gotta go to the secret place first. That's where you meet with Jesus. See, here's a definition of the secret place. The secret place is the space where you meet with the presence of God to cultivate a deep inner life of godliness. So my, 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 my challenge is, do you have a secret place? Because you will never experience God's favor like Daniel in the public place until you dwell in the secret place. So where is your secret place with God? For many of us, it can be different. Uh, for me, my secret place usually happens around this coffee mug at about 4.30 a.m. I would love to wake up early. My kids aren't awake yet, some days, not today. My kids usually aren't awake yet, and it's my time where no one's up to where I can be with Jesus. Now, you may not consider yourself a morning person, I don't either, but there's a lot of studies that show that the thing that you first put your mind on in the morning is gonna be the thing that directs your day more than anything else. So waking up early in the morning before the kids get up is my secret place. I brew my coffee, I sit there with Jesus, I read my Bible, I confess sin, I pray, and I go to my Father 
who is in the secret place. I'm not perfect at it. I don't do it every day. I'm a human just like you, but this is my happy place and my secret place. Now, for you, you might, you might be different. I have a friend at church here. His name is Jeremy. He, he, works, he works a shift at Denzo, and, and his, his life uh, is, is a lot different than mine. It's not a nine-to-five life. You may, you may live and work like that. And so his time and place, because he's working night shift, is a lunch break, is, is a work break. And so maybe you, you're not going to wake up early, early in the morning, but you might be able to pop your AirPods in and take a walk and dwell on Scripture for about 30 minutes in between your shifts at work. I have a friend named Josh who, who he's, a, he's a night owl. He likes to stay up late at night, and his secret place is right after the kids go to bed. That's his secret place. You may not be an early morning. It might look a little bit different for you, but do you have a secret place? Do you have the place where you meet in the presence of Jesus to cultivate an inner life of godliness? Then we have the third one over here. There was a woman, her name was Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley was the mother of Charles and John Wesley, who were some of the greatest Methodist American missionaries ever. They shared the gospel. They changed church history. She had 10 kids all in the house at the same time. Now, I don't know if you're breaking out in hives, but I am. <laughs> Susanna Wesley had 10 kids, and one author writes about her that, that she made it her mission that she would not spend more time in entertainment and leisure than she did in the secret place with God. And here was her habit and her routine with 10 kids in the house. First off, she had a special chair. Now, I don't know if you know this, but everybody needs a special chair in their life, <laughs> like a place where you go sit. Mine's a lazy boy recliner, and it stays downstairs because it's ugly. It's got to go to the basement, the real secret place. <laughs> My wife doesn't want that in the public place. <laughs> but you need a chair. And so what she would do, Susanna Wesley, in the midst of her craziness with all the kids in the house, she would take her apron, and she would put it over her head. <laughs> now, I can't leave this on too long or somebody's going to get a picture, and uh, it's going to go on social media, and no one's going to understand. But she would take her apron, and she would create her tent. You remember in the Old Testament, they had a tabernacle, a tent of meeting. She would create her tabernacle, her tent of meeting with God, and when she would sit down in that special chair, I bet the kids would try to burn the house down, but they knew that this was mom's secret place. I don't know what it looks like for you, whether it's the early morning, whether it's the lunch break, or whether it's right in the middle of the lion's den of toddlers. I don't know what it looks like for you. But if you want to be faithful, if you want to be fruitful, if you want to steward your influence and your success and all the things that God has brought you in the public place, you got to get to the secret place to be cultivated for an inner life of godliness. It's not optional. I get it. You have a stressful life. You, there, are probably things, there are probably variables and factors in your life that, that I have, would have no idea how to navigate. Many of us feel like we don't have time for secret place with Jesus. But let me just tell you, we don't have time not to have it. Do you want to be the next generation's old hero? So we can't remain faithful without being faithful in the secret place. You know, many of you have tried this before. 
You, and, and you're like, all right, I just got to grit it out and do my thing and do better. Well, like Daniel, Daniel had a sin to overcome, but he also had a system. And so I want to share with you a, a, a very simple system today as we wrap up how to do this. And it comes from a book, one of my favorite books of all time is, it's not a Christian book, it's called Atomic Habits. It's by an author named James Clear. And he talks about the system that's based upon research of how we, how we are to create a habit. And I believe it applies perfectly for the secret place. So uh, the first thing he says is this, is he says, we don't rise to the level of our goal. We fall to the level of our system. So you may have a goal to create something in your life, but do you have a system that's gonna maintain it? You're not just gonna immediately create your goal, you're gonna fall back to where your system is. So we don't rise to the level of our goal, we fall to the level of our system. So he says that there's four steps to create a behavior change in our life. And, 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 and so let's talk about them. The first thing he says is make it obvious. And this is all about the habit cue. You know that there are certain cues. It's like the, the dog, when it hears the dinner bell, it salivates. You have cues set up in your life already. So my cue to, to, for the secret place is when that alarm goes off in the morning, I gotta do whatever it takes to let my feet hit the ground. That's my cue. Alarm, it's obvious, it's exactly what I gotta do. I know exactly what I need to do in that moment. I got to get up. Now, I don't know what your cue is. It might be a lunch break. It might be an alarm you set on your phone. It might be, uh, I, I don't know what that is for you, but this is mine. You have to make it obvious. The second thing you have to do is you have to make it attractive. Now, this has all to do with the craving that happens in your habit. So for me, I don't know if you're like this, my temptation in the morning is the first thing for me to do is to check Twitter or to check the news. That's me. So when I wake up in the morning, that's what I naturally, my natural inclination is to get on my phone. So what I've done is I'm trying to make my habit more attractive to me. So what I've created just a small habit loop in my life that when I wake up in the morning, when I answer that cube, I am craving to get on my phone. So here's what I do. I simply just take a picture and I post something that God was teaching me that morning and I share it with some of my friends. This not only helps me keep my friends accountable, it also keeps me accountable. It also reinforces my habit. And early in the morning, you know, I'll even get people saying, man, how do I do that? How do I get started? It's attractive to me. The third thing that he says to do is to make it easy. So you need to make the habit easy as well. So if you're not waking up early, don't wake up to, at 3 a.m. in the morning. That's not a way to make it easy. Start somewhere and work your way into it. So for me, one of the ways that I make it easier for me is I set the coffee pot the night before. I get my Bible out. I get my journal out. I put my house shoes by my bedside like a 99-year-old man, all right? That's what I do. I make it easy for me to get up and go. And then the last thing I do is this, and this is his rule, is to make it satisfying. Now, I'll just be honest with you. There's nothing more satisfying than meeting with Jesus. There's nothing more satisfying than your day being motivated and fueled by joy and not the drudgery that is just going in, clocking out, and going home. Is that I get to serve Jesus today. It's satisfying. And then, because the way that I do it, I share it with other people. This morning, I got here to church and somebody said, hey, hey man, I, I joined the 4.30 a.m. grind with you. I'm up. And it's crazy, man, how much more I'm able to focus on Jesus early in the morning. I'm like, that's so satisfying to me because not only am I serving Jesus, but I'm helping others serve Jesus. This is a small habit loop for me. Now, this may be completely different for you. 
I totally understand that. But this is how I've created a habit practically to be in the secret place with Jesus. And though I don't do it perfectly, and though I'm not like, I'm not like the expert on this by any means, but, but it changes everything for me. Starting your day in the presence of God changes how I treat my wife. It changes how I work. It changes my focus. I mean, Leanna and I, we both believe that we have more energy in the day with less sleep if we've had more time in the secret place. So if I want to wake up and not almost cuss out some toddlers, I need to be with Jesus in the morning. Amen? Anybody feel that this morning? If you want to go and you want to, you, you want to, you want to lead like Jesus at your job, you need to be with Jesus before your job. So I want to challenge you. It's not just behavior modification. It's getting you in the place with the Holy Spirit for Him to begin to work on your heart, to change you. The process called sanctification, where you are made more and more like Jesus. See, think about this. Even Jesus withdrew to the secret place with his father. If God needed time with God, how much more do we need time with God? We need the secret place. And here's what would happen if we would prioritize this inner life. In other words, this would be the result. Titus 2 says this. For the grace of God, everybody say that out loud at both locations. Everybody say it together. Say grace of God. God. Has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And it teaches us to say no. It teaches us. It's a system. See, when you wake up in the morning and you set your gaze on the grace of God, what's the grace of God? It's called the gospel. It's that Jesus died for you. He rose again for you. He lives for you. And he reigns and rules over this earth right now. When I set my mind on that, I am then taught to say no to ungodliness, to worldly passions, to live a self-controlled and upright lifestyle. See guys, when I remember that I am bought with a price, I don't have to settle for cheap substitutes. When I remember that the tomb is empty, I don't have to keep filling myself with things that ultimately leave me empty. When I remember that Jesus was beat up for me, I don't have to beat myself up throughout the day. When I remember that Jesus hung on the cross, I don't have to hang out with those old crews anymore. I can follow and serve Jesus. When I remember that Jesus rose from the grave, I can rise up too to serve Him today. This is what it means to set our gaze on Him and just take one more bite. He says, come, come, all who are thirsty, drink. All who are hungry, come and eat. Come take one more bite. I am the meal. Whoever doesn't eat my flesh and drink my blood has no part of me. So the crazy things Jesus says, what's he calling us to do? He's saying, come, there's a supper prepared and my son is the sacrifice. Won't you come eat? See, when you talk to the next generation and you hear, why do they leave church? I don't know if you ever heard this, the term called deconstruction. They deconstruct their faith, they've been questioning their faith, and it's ultimately deconstruction for many of them that leads to deconversion. And you talk to these people who walk away from their faith, and do you know why 
they walk away from their faith? It's not because of Hollywood. It's not because of culture. It's not because of critical theory or the LGBTQ movement. When you read about deconstruction stories, the almost number one common theme you see is the reason that they left the church was because of the failures of the people within the church. Or in other words, because of the old heroes. People who said they loved God, served God, but did heinous acts, hurt people, created church hurt. I don't want to become an old hero. I don't want you to become an old hero. I want us to be like Daniel, faithful in the secret place. And really what it comes down to for me is that, yeah, I want to, I want to, I want to praise God and I want to serve God and bring Him glory, but I don't want to be their old heroes. I want to be faithful to Jesus. Long obedience, the same direction to cultivate an inner life of godliness in the public space. And I hope you do too. But here's the deal. You know this, I know this. At the end of the day, we're all old heroes to someone. It doesn't matter if you've lived a godly life or an ungodly life, none of us have lived a perfect life. We've all been an old hero in a way. And my goal isn't that I'm gonna be their superhero when I'm old. My goal is that they've watched a life of faithfulness that pointed them to the ultimate hero. That they saw their dad, they saw their mom, that they saw their family get their eyes on the ultimate hero of the story. See, Jesus is the hero of this story. It's not about behavior modification, it's about Jesus. It's not about doing better or being better or starting new habits. It's just about Jesus. It's about pointing people to Jesus. That's what I want my life to become, and I hope you do too. Not just for the sake of the next generation, even though that's important. Not just for the sake of the community and those who are lost, even though that's important, but because that's what Jesus died for. That's what Jesus rose for, so that we might live for Him. So somebody here today, I hope, is gonna commit their life, to recommit their life, to resurrender their life and say, God, in this season of my life, I'm coming to the secret place because I want my outer life to be sustained by my inner godliness and life with you. So as we pray, would you bow your head with me? Are you willing to commit to being in the secret? There's nothing more important than this. For the sake of your family, for the sake of your kids, for the sake of your grandkids and your great-grandkids, for the sake of your witness, for the sake of the kingdom of God, are you willing to commit to the secret place? And maybe right now, I'm not gonna make you raise your hand, but maybe just as a sign of commitment to that right now, if you're sitting beside your spouse, or your kids, or a close friend, 
Maybe just put your arm around them as just a sign of saying, I'm committing to this. Maybe you just put your hand on their knee or you, you, you just lean in. Say, let's do this. Let's commit to Jesus in this season. Can't wait to watch what he does through that faithfulness. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come before you, we worship you, we serve you, I pray that you would satisfy us with your presence. I know you're gonna do it. I don't even have to pray about it. I know that when, you, when we meet with you, you satisfy us. So thank you for that. And I pray that we become a people known as the ones who say no to the ungodliness and the worldly passions, to be in the secret with you. Use us, move in us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Thank you so much for watching this video. We'd love for you to like the video and leave a comment. And we also encourage you to subscribe and click the bell so you never miss a post from Foothills Church. To learn more about FC, just head to our website by going to foothillschurch.com or by clicking the link in the description below.